Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 13, uh, verse 1. Uh, Moses is recounting the law. And uh, for those of us that have been here uh, through several of these studies, you're probably sick of me sort of giving this recap. But I think it's significant for us to understand that uh, the previous generation that came out of captivity in Egypt has passed away, the elder generation. And what remains is the younger generation that has grown up. Some of them saw these things that he's talking about uh, transpire, received the law, but they were very young. And now they're adults, and they are going to enter into the promised land, and they're going to be required to live by these things. And so they're recounting the law. They're going through what previously was the book of Leviticus. Now they're getting it as the second occasion, the Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy uh, given to them so that they'll be prepared to live by these counsels and live by these instructions inside the land. I think Deuteronomy chapter 13 is very significant in all of the word of God. And we'll see why. Verse 1, if there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods which you may have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. <clears throat> so here's the thought. <clears throat> Most of us have read and understand Jesus saying, for instance, just as an example, right? You cannot serve God and mammon. Uh, that's a, a ancient world God, um, you know, we equate it today in a modern sense of being equal to or the same as money. And it certainly has money as part of the worship, the obsession with money, the desire for money, the desire for riches and wealth, materialism, possession. Mammon was a God of power, which incorporated money. So politics, business, money were all part of worshiping mammon. If we strip away the ancient idol, its little statue, its altar, and we just leave the ideology and the premise in place, America very much is engaged in the worship of mammon. It is enthralled with all of the things that mammon was and mammon promoted. So that statement by Jesus of not worshiping mammon, worshiping money, power, politics, influence, all that stuff, right, shouldn't be part of the Christian lifestyle. It shouldn't be part of Christian existence. And yet people are all caught up in this. Now consider the health, wealth, and prosperity movement. Okay? I'm going to name names specifically 
as we move through chapter 13 this morning from our time, people that we should not follow, because in particular, this passage tells us to do that, okay, to identify those that lead people away, lead them astray, and do terrible things. So Rodney Howard Brown in Lakeland, Florida, is the origin of a lot of what is known as the health, wealth, and prosperity movement. The School of Rama, their university, is part of that. You have teachers that emerge from those universities and from that school of thinking like Joyce Meyer, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Ken Hagen, pretty much most of which is Trinity Broadcast Network. Okay. There's a lot of other good teachers on Trinity Broadcast Network, don't get me wrong, okay? You have to use your discernment. The ones that would lead you astray, as it has just said here, someone comes, right? They're a preacher, they're a promoter, they're a dreamer of dreams, and they declare to you something that comes true, right? It's easy if someone comes and declares something to you spiritually, which you can identify as false, and then it does not come true. That's when you just throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? It's all garbage load. I don't need this. Done. When it's coming true, the Lord says, that's when you're going to have to use your discernment. Okay, so you're going to have to know the evils of money, the worship of power, and all of these things from the word of God beforehand. You're going to have to have the biblical principles established in your heart and mind because when the preacher stands in the pulpit and says, when you're within the will of God, you will automatically be healthy. You'll automatically be wealthy. And then you start to follow their practices What happens if you start getting wealthy? What happens if you start experiencing the very things they're saying? And yet it's false. You have to know the word of God. You have to know the spirit of Christ in order to have the discernment to stay away from those things. Proverbs tells us that the person who desires to become wealthy has a heart full of wickedness. If we become wealthy, right, the scripture doesn't condemn that. It's that constant, incessant need and desire and promotion thereof. Right? Solomon, author of Proverbs, you know, much of the Psalms, so much of the scripture that we, uh, very wealthy man. I mean, to, to the point where probably his kingdom was the wealthiest that the world has ever seen. Silver was as common as rocks in his day. And that's not a figure of speech. Just, you know, you need a doorstop, just head down to, you know, ancient Walmart and, you know, come back with a chunk of silver to prop your door open with. That, that's the way things were. Wealth. God blessed them with wealth, but it was because of their wisdom and their pursuit of the Lord. We shouldn't be pursuant of the wealth. So when the preachers stand in the pulpit and they promote things that are ungodly, the only way you're going to be able to discern those things is if you know the word of God. It's a really treacherous thing. You know what's most grievous to me? Is the communities where these preachers thrive the strongest 
are in the most impoverished communities in the world. Because, right, the people in those communities desire to be wealthy more than any. You go to a wealthy community, right, and you tell them, hey, if you want to be godly, then you got to be wealthy. They go, okay, well, there, I'm done. I'm already wealthy. You go to an impoverished community and you say, you want to be wealthy, you want to be, you know, you, get, you want to be wealthy, you got to be godly. You'll experience these things if you give to my ministry. So, so they glean from those people, they, they steal from those people the very things that those people desire because those people are desiring it back, right? Benny Hinn, 1992, confronted by Hank Hanegraaff over the fact that they were preaching a tenfold giving. Some of us may have remembered all of that preaching that was going on from 91 into 92. If you give to the Lord, they were saying, God will give back tenfold to you. So if you send me 10 bucks right now, God's going to send you $100. I mean, they were saying that straight out. They're telling people on the television, if you don't have the money in the bank account, that doesn't matter. <clears throat> Write the check anyway. Because God's going to bless you with the money. They're encouraging people to commit felonies, you guys. R write a check for money you don't have in your bank account. You know, you, you do that for more than $1,000, it's grand larceny. And you got to live with that for the rest of your life. They backpedaled on it. So Hank Hanegraaff is writing articles at the time, Bible Answer Man, and he's rebuking them publicly. Benny Hinn comes on TBN and says, you know, he's got his Bible in his hand. He's marching back and forth. You can still find the video on YouTube. And he's saying, I wish I could find it in here. I've searched. I can't. I'd like to find it in here somewhere. It says that I could just shoot him right in the face with a Holy Ghost machine gun. That sounds really biblical, doesn't it? Desire to murder somebody. It, it doesn't matter the degree to which it's coming true in their life or in someone else's life. What you need to look for is, does it align with God's word? We live in a culture full of this. I'll give you some more examples as we move along. Look at verse 4. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Wow, the Lord takes it pretty serious, right? I stand up here and I simply say the name of the individual and say, you shouldn't listen to them. Don't buy their books. Don't watch their sermons. Don't listen to their television programs. And people send me emails and tell me what a hate-filled preacher I am. I'm just telling you, don't listen to them. God said, kill them. Put them to death. Okay, it's Old Testament, right? He doesn't want us doing that today. He's talking about in the nation of Israel when someone rises up to lead you as a nation away from me. I get all of that. The, the point I'm trying to drive across to us this morning is the severity of this for the modern church. Because this junk goes on continuously and people act like, ah, oh, it's no big deal. We'll just, we'll just let people figure it out on their own. As biblical teachers, it's our responsibility to point out where people are wrong so that you can avoid them, right? We just had a conversation with my 
son-in-law, a man that he has been trying to disciple for some time, has in the past year and a half gone from born-again Christian to doesn't know if he believes in a God at all to maybe he's going to become a Mormon all the way over to now he's an avowed Muslim. Look, there are many people within the church who need very strong guidance. Their instability, their immaturity, right? You're sitting here this morning thinking, wow, this guy's dwelling on this. I don't really see the need for it. If, if you're strong, if you're stable, if you're mature enough to recognize these things and not get caught up in them, praise God. But there are many within the body of Christ who don't have that. And it is the responsibility of the leadership of the body of Christ to relay that to the bride of Christ in order that she would be healthy and strong and not led astray. Eternity's at stake, right? If somebody gets led astray away from the faith, away from the Lord by this, they could literally, literally spend an eternity separated from God. I, I find it disgraceful that pastors stand in the pulpit and take that position of, well, it's not really you know, my business. Who am I to tell you? Uh, we are we are the saviors of souls when it comes to the delivery of the gospel. That is our responsibility. Read the book of Jude again regarding the false teachers that come into the church and hear at the end of that book where Jude says, reaching even into the fires of hell to grab some out. Right? We need to have a seriousness of commitment. If, if our approach is... Uh, well, you know, they have to make up their own mind. I don't want to interfere. Then I have to question whether you really believe the things written in the scripture or not. Right? I see you stumbling into just literally a physical bonfire. And I step back and say, well, who am I to tell that person what to do? I mean, that's just an earthly temporary injury. That's not an eternal destruction of your soul. That, that's a, a much more grave thing to consider. So you're to put them to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away evil from your midst. The toleration of our culture does so much destruction. The, you know, the attitude of just let those people think and do what they want to do. Let them go the way they want to go. Who am I to say? I understand freedom and I promote the concept of freedom. I'm not talking about making everyone believe what we believe, but I think that the church has given up the fight and just allowed things to take over, right? In regard to abortion, that issue is not about choice. That issue is about life and death. And life begins, people say life begins at conception. I, I just want to correct you from the scripture. It begins before conception, right? Because we were known, we were established before the foundations of the world. Life 
comes from God. God has made it sacred, and we are not to interfere with it unless he gives us mandates such as this, to protect others. Taking an innocent life because of the inconvenience? That's outrageous. Our, our culture is so caught up in this issue of freedom, right? Freedom of choice. You know, I, we, we have choice about everything, don't we? It doesn't, I mean, just, just think about, you know, the way the coffee menu is when you're trying to order. You know, do you want milk or skim milk or cream or almond milk or cashew milk or just choices, right? Everybody's so particular about everything that they have. Can't have cane sugar, need to have stevia. Don't want stevia, got to have Splenda. Can't have Splenda, got to have honey. Don't want honey, you need to also have, and the list just goes on and on and on. We're all about choice. You know, there are places in the world where there is no choice. We are so spoiled as a people that we're literally willing to take human life. Over, over the fact that someone would dare say, you don't have a choice in this matter. We're gravely offended as a culture at the thought that we wouldn't have freedom of choice. Your, your life is precious, and I don't have any right to say anything about whether you have it or not. Right? If, I, if I interfere with your ability to, leave, to live, we call it murder. Taking the life of an unborn child is murder. And our culture is obsessed with choice, so we go that direction. That, that has been promoted, right, by word of mouth. And, and Christianity has shrunk back from the fight. Right now, the militant homosexual community is overtaking our communities overtaking our public school systems. And Christianity is shrinking away from the necessity to stand in the face of that and combat it. And I mean, what I'm witnessing is cowardice more than anything. It isn't even, you know, the noble cause of tolerance. It's just cowardice, especially as Christianity shrinks away. Who else is going to defend? You understand what this is doing to the children of our culture? I don't buy anything from Target. I don't know about you. I literally have joined the official boycott of Target. <clears throat> because Target promotes, they don't just allow it, they promote the use of their bathrooms and their changing rooms by the gay, lesbian, transgender community. Just need to use the bathroom? Come on over to our place. You a man dressed as a woman? Just feel free to go right in there with our daughters. Feel free to go right in there with our children. Conceptually, I hope you're already offended at the concept. But now, look at the statistics, right? There have been dozens of sexual assault cases at the Target stores, in the bathrooms, and in the changing rooms because they promote this. You heard about that in the national news? Is that right up front for everybody to pay attention? No, it's not. 
It's not. And it's not just some radical thing that Christians are making up. This is literally happening every day in our culture. Target has lost stock because of this. Financial investment is pulling out because of this. And they continue to plunge ahead and push all the more to make these things happen. They have an agenda. They have an agenda. They have an agenda. American Family Association (AFA). If you're not part of that, go online. I would encourage you to sign up, get their newsletters regularly. You'll be able to be aware and participate in these things. Our culture is largely being lost because of the ineffectiveness of the church. The church isn't doing anything. Right? What did Jesus say? You're the salt and the light of the earth, right? If if salt loses its saltiness, what good is it for? You know, I mean, if you buy salt and you go to use salt and you're like, there's no taste, there's no, you know, connection, I'll just have to add salt to this. We, we would be absolutely absurd if we had to participate in it that way. We need to be the preservative of our culture. That's what salt did in Jesus' day. They didn't have refrigeration. It was the number one source of preservation of food and life and sustainability. It stopped decay. It stopped rot. And the church is not doing that, not engaged in that. Here, the call from the Lord. I redeemed you out of bondage, and someone wants to entice you away. Verse 6, if your brother... The son of your mother, the son, uh, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom or your friend, who is as your own soul, secretly entices you, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you, which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, of the gods of the people who are all around you, near to you or far from you. From one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, you shall not consent to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him. Don't spare him or conceal him. Okay, well, I understand that's you know, your position on those pastors upon those ministries, but why do you have to name them by name? I'm not going to conceal them. I'm not going to speak generically of them and let you try to figure out who they are. They are blatantly false teachers within the body of Christ that are leading people astray. Right? Benny Hinn's book, Good Morning Holy Spirit, taken to the publishers, was returned to Benny Hinn. And the Christian publication company said, you must misunderstand us. We are a Christian publication company, and what you have just given us is not a Christian book. It's Eastern mysticism. You'll need to find another publisher. Then he said, no, 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 no. I, I want to have it published through you because you are the connection to the greatest Christian audience in America, I need you as the Christian publisher to publish my book so that it comes through you. They said, we only you know, publish Christian books. What you have is not Christianity. 
So he and his team rewrite it, give it back to the publication company. Publication company, again, says you don't understand what Christianity is. The title of the book, Good Morning Holy Spirit, seems Christian. You read the book, it's not Christian at all. We will not publish that. Back and forth until finally Benny Hinn's crew sits down with the publication company. And the publish, publication company rewrites the book. Benny Hinn pays them to do it, and then they publish it together. And you might think, well, good, at least they avoided you know, publishing something that was non-Christian. Well, I say to you again that the author behind it wasn't capable of producing something Christian. He had to ask Christians to do it. I, I would hope you'd be offended if I stood up here with somebody that wanted to preach to you, and I did that with them. They, they were incapable of preaching a Christian message, and I just kept stopping them and interrupting them and rephrasing what they were saying until what was coming from them and me together was a Christian message for you to receive here Sunday morning. And what does Christianity get, right? They just get a book, boom, lands in their hands. Good morning, Holy Spirit, Benny Hinn. Wow, we ought to buy that, and it becomes a New York Times bestseller. That's a lot of what's going on inside Christianity. And people are completely unaware of it because there's a giant money machine behind it that's just turning this junk out the door. Consider my friend Mike Dynick, if you're listening. Hey, Mike. Um, he said years ago to me, I won't read anything written by anyone that's still alive as far as Christianity goes. And I thought I knew what he was saying. So that's a little odd. Well, I mean, what, what's your take on that? He said, no, I want to see them finish well. I, I want what they teach to remain correct and proper all the way to the end. Right? Because we've seen that too, right? They're doing fine and they get to a certain place and start to fall apart and go a different direction and end up, you know, someplace. And you have to tell people, well, if you read their stuff, like don't read anything after, you know, this publication or that publication or that year. That's terrible. That's absolutely terrible that that is, in fact, the testimony of the body of Christ. Not going to conceal it, but verse 9, you shall surely kill him. Your shall be, hand shall be first against him to put him to death. This is family. This is children. This is husbands. This is wives. This is, this is your dearest person in your life. If they lead you astray away from Christian faith, put them to death. Again, please, nobody be delusional about the New Testament sense of things. Christ isn't calling us to kill people. Not, not even calling us to go beat them up. But certainly if Christ would tell the congregation of Israel this in the Old Testament, then we can find a New Testament application that says, warn the body of Christ, let people know who they are and then have nothing to do with them. Have nothing to do with them. Avoid them at all costs. Afterward, your hand, uh, after, uh, afterward, the hand of all the people. You begin the process and then let the people follow. You shall stone him with stones until he dies because he sought to entice you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. So all Israel shall hear and fear and not again do such wickedness 
as this among you. So a number of years ago now, uh, my daughters leading worship here in this church, we were singing a song that they had found that I think I had introduced them to from a band called Gungor. Michael Gungor is the lead singer of that band. The song was called Beautiful Things. Well, as I read the lyrics on the rest of the album, a number of things stood out to me that didn't seem exactly lined up with biblical doctrine, and I'm super picky. So I started to say to them, you know, we need to find out more about what's going on with Michael Gungor and their doctrine. And it was just a couple months later when Michael Gungor was in Christianity Today mocking Christians, mocking Christians who believe in creationism, promoting evolution, denouncing the six literal days of creation recorded in the book of Genesis. And I said, okay, so we're all done with gun gore and we're all done with the song Beautiful Things. And over the years, I've had to say to the worship team, we're not going to do any of Bethel Music's music. Their doctrine is way off base. We're not going to do Hillsong's stuff. We're going to stay away from these things. Now, as you sit there right now, you might be thinking, okay, this guy is legalistic. Just way too picky. So yesterday, my son-in-law says to me, hey, that whole thing with gun gore and evolution, and you were hung up on that, said we couldn't do that music. I said, yeah. He said, do you see what Michael Gungor's saying on Twitter today? I said, no. Michael Gungor posted Twitter June 23rd. Jesus was Christ. We all go, amen. Then he said, Buddha was Christ. Then he said, Mohammed was Christ. Christ is a word for the universe seeing itself. You are Christ. We are Christ. Nuh-uh. You know how I know? <clears throat> I've hung out with you. And you've hung out with me. And you can clearly understand that I am not Christ. And we have read of the character of Buddha. And we know he is not Christ. And we have read of the character of Muhammad. And here, by the way, Christ means the singular one anointed one. There is only one Christ. Buddhism, right, Mohammedism, Islam, never had it in their mind, in their religion, in their doctrine, in their thought that there was a coming one who was going to be their savior. Only Judaism taught that, that there was a coming Messiah. Only Christianity 
codified that and made that understanding for the body of Christ. Christianity alone, that term belongs to us. Because it belongs to our Christ. He is the Christ. There is only one Christ. Anyone leads you astray from the doctrine of God's word, abandon them. Abandon them. You say, well, I've actually examined a bunch of this, and the problem with that, Will, is if I just go with biblical doctrine, the menu is so small. You just take all the variety away. Yeah, the nation of Israel whined about that, remember? All we get is this manna. And then God struck them dead for complaining about the menu. Yes, right. The Word of God is much more narrow. Right. The road to destruction is wide. Right. Very easy to get onto. Very easy to find yourself separated for all of eternity from the God who loved you and delivered you from the bondage of your sin. We need to be disciplined followers of Jesus Christ. And you need to be very cautious about those that are all around and in. Right? Remember what Jesus was saying when he teaches the parable of the sower and the seed, and then he talks about right, the birds of the air come and steal away. Remember that? Are we, are we all on the same page? The birds of the way come and steal the seed away. He then explains that the birds of the air are demons, the devil himself. You turn the page and he teaches the parable of the mustard seed, right? That when planted grows up and fills the whole earth. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed planted. When it is full grown, it fills the whole earth so large that its branches become home. That the birds of the air make their nests in its branches. He gives us the definition of saying the birds are demonic. And then says the kingdom of God is going to become so large that even that which is demonic will make its home in the body of Christ. You can find demonic teachings in the pulpit. In the pulpit. You know, when you listen to the doctrine of the pastor leading Bethel music, and he's talking about having physically eaten of the body of Christ and how he can commune with the dead. Those are not biblical teachings. Those, that doesn't line up with the word of God. We want to be very careful, right? And here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, it's just music, man. I mean, it's just entertainment. I just, you know, I just like to enjoy myself. Yeah, well, what if it was your own daughter? Because right here, the Lord said, put them to death. And you're going to be first at putting your hand to them to put them to death. And then everyone else will follow. So collectively, you as the body put them to death. But then when it comes to entertainment, everybody's like, that's oh, no big deal. Why? Is that the sacred cow? Is that the thing we don't, we don't want to touch? We don't want to get rid of? We don't dare 
We've, we've already you know, refined and restricted things down so small that to get rid of that, consider, you guys, how dangerous these things are inside the body of Christ. The, the doctrines which lead people astray, that lead people from the truth of God's word. You know, I'm talking to some of the younger crowd about, well, you know, we just like that more modern sound. Look up Josh Geralt's. One of the most progressive Christian artists of today. Remarkable. His doctrine is so old school, it's crazy. The, 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 I mean, he, he's, like, he's writing like Isaac Watts wrote hundreds of years ago. His doctrine is so good. You know, he's one in a million, but he's somebody that you can hang on to. You know, I had a I had a big fit some months ago. People here were talking to me about. I'm focusing on music. Forgive me for that. Uh, Zach Williams, right? I just I just watched the you know proverbial sound wave go through the room. Uh, everybody loves Zach Williams, right? Well, Zach Williams uh, recently uh, did the song with Dolly Parton, right? There was Jesus, and everybody goes, "Oh, so wonderful." My, my wife's having a fit back here, right? Yeah, so that, thank you for making my case. <laughs> and then this week, Dolly Parton is in the news, right? Because she's recreating her Playboy magazine photo spread. To which I said, sick, you know? <laughs> There was Jesus. And then just a matter of weeks later. It was horrifying in 1978, right? And now we're doing it again. The body of Christ, the body of Christ does not have any of this pollution in it. And we're hearing these people bring it in. We're supposed to go. It's interesting. When you finally read, you know, they, they become musical stars and they're all over Christianity and they're playing everywhere and everybody's bowing down to their stardom. And then decades later, we finally go, so what do you believe? <laughs> and we find out that what they believe doesn't line up with the word of God at all. Not even remotely. You need to consider, right? Because there's a whole bunch of Christianity. Those of us that are more mature say, okay, that's where the line's drawn, and I'm done with that here in this moment. But there's a whole bunch of Christianity that says, oh, okay, so that opens up all kinds of doors for me. Because I've honored this person as a spiritual leader in my life, a worship leader in my life, and now they've demonstrated that they embrace all of this garbage, so therefore all of this garbage must be acceptable. Because after all, they're a worship leader. If you've enjoyed it and you come to the point where you recognize the filth that's involved in it, then that has to be the point where you cut it off. That you're done with it. That's not my opinion. This is the word of God. 
If it's going to lead you straight, right? It doesn't matter how good, right? Oh, he predicted and look, it came true. Oh, they sang this song and there's a spiritual truth in it. Yeah, but they're also completely off base. You need to consider what's leading you. What is it that's taking your heart to the places where they end up? <clears throat> if you hear someone in one of your cities, verse 12, which the Lord your God gives you to dwell in. Now, so I'm just, my mind's like going a different direction as I'm reading this. So let me do this, okay? This is the benefit, again, I, as I started, this is the benefit to reading the whole word of God. If, if we just take selected passages that we like, if we just, let's just stay in the New Testament. Let's just stay in Jesus' teachings. Let's just stay in Jesus' teachings that we like. That are, you know, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking right now that I'm probably offending people with this message. I know I've offended my wife, you know. She saw Zach Williams in concert and she loved his performance. Just really liked his music. And now I'm blowing it up. Here's the deal, okay? If we're not reading the Word of God and letting the Word of God guide us as believers, if we're simply saying, okay, I'm Christian, but I prefer this passage of the Scripture and that passage of the Scripture and this view of Jesus and that view of Jesus, then what we're doing is we're constructing for ourselves a Jesus that we like. Okay, you're creating an idol if you do that. If you do not allow, right? Because Jesus is, is the Word, right? John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Verse 15, the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. The Word of God needs to be left alone to be the Word of God. You know, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, John, the book of Revelation, all record. If you take away from this book, your name will be taken away from the word of life, the book of life. If you add to this book, then the curses contained in this book will be added to you. I'm not interested in either one of those things happening to me or any of you. The Word of God needs to stand and declare what it declares. To say what it says. Listen, <clears throat> heathen music is heathen music. They want to make, you know, whatever they do, they make whatever they do. I hear this stuff, I go, wow, that sounds pretty cool. You know, as far as its sound, its tone, what they've done, the construction, that's heathen music. When it comes to the body of Christ and its worship, that needs to line up with the Word of God. Does, does that make sense to us? We don't want to lead people astray off into something that's incorrect, presenting as though it were correct and presenting it as though it were truth. So there are many other applications. You can take a stab at deriving those. If someone, verse 12, in one of your cities, which the Lord your God gives you to dwell in, saying corrupt men have gone out from among you and enticed all the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods, 
which you have not known. Then you shall inquire, search out, ask diligently. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination has was committed among you, you shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it, all that is in it and its livestock. With the edge of the sword, you shall gather all its plunder into the middle of the street and completely burn with fire the city and all its plunder. For the Lord your God, it shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. So none of the accursed things shall remain in your hand, and the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy, have compassion on you and multiply you, just as he swore to your fathers, because you have listened to the voice of the Lord your God to keep all his commandments, which I command you today, to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord your God. There is a great reward in following the dictates and the desires of the Lord, right? Notice that God doesn't say, I want you to go cross the border and find those other pagan cities that have nothing to do with you, and I want you to go and destroy them, right? The Lord knows that there are ungodly people in the world, and he wants us to invite them into his kingdom and to experience his salvation. But inside his kingdom, inside the body of Christ, there needs to be a very strict attention to what is biblical doctrine, godly conduct, proper and right teaching. If, if we're not going to follow those things, then everything falls apart from there. Everything falls apart from there. there. There is no such thing as right or wrong once you begin to blur and move those lines. Once anyone can define these things, right? This is what we're dealing with in our culture. Our culture, you know, take, for instance, marriage, right? We've talked about this in a few different ways. <clears throat> once the culture says... Marriage is not defined as one man marrying one woman for life. Once you move that line, then it starts becoming anything is acceptable. You know, they, they start out with the concept of saying, well, <clears throat> you know, a woman and a woman can get married because that's love. And a man and a man can get married because that's love. Once you've said God is incorrect, marriage is not one man marrying one woman, then everything becomes possible. I think it was last week that I said, you know, you know, I went through a list of things regarding marriage, and then I said, so if a woman marries a dolphin, and we got laughter last week, except in India it has happened. I mean, it has to be a long-distance relationship, but, you know. I'm not making that up. Once you start moving the line, I mean, are you aware that right now there are Supreme Court battles that are going on that says, why does it have to be defined as one man marrying one woman? We've changed it so that it's not one man marrying one woman. Now it's a woman marrying a woman. Why can't one woman marry three women? 
Why can't one man marry six women? Why can't one woman marry six men? The institution of marriage belongs to God. It belongs to him. He created it. It's his. We don't get to redefine it. This is one of the things that's really quite interesting. The homosexual community has begun to recognize that marriage destroys their homosexual relationships. Isn't that weird? That's their definition. Pride magazine. That people who just cohabitate have whatever degree of relationship they're going to have. But the minute that they get marriage, their relationships seem to fall apart. That's because they've entered into an institution that belongs to God. God isn't attacking it. God isn't saying, I hate homosexuals and I don't want them to have a relationship. I'm going to destroy them. That's the devil himself saying that institution belongs to God. I don't even want homosexuals getting involved in God's institution. Right? Because, because what is marriage? It is commitment, correct? Right? Anybody that's been married for more than a week <clears throat> knows that it's not about romance. Right? Romance will take you into it. Commitment's the only thing that keeps you there. Commitment can keep the romance also. It can. It can preserve the romance. But romance doesn't preserve marriage. It is an institution created by God. Commitment and family is what it is designed for by God. Commitment and family. That, that is why. How, how, many, how many young people? I, I discourage people from getting married that aren't ready for it. If, if you're not ready for the fight that is going to come, don't even bother. Don't, if you think it's romance, if you think that it's intimacy, if you think it's anything other than commitment, you are dead wrong. And <clears throat> your, your disappointment is going to be overwhelming. It is so challenging to enter into marriage. Why? You have to die to yourself. Right? And the, the, over and over again, young people come back and they're like, you know, I just didn't understand. Yeah, I tried to tell you that. That you didn't understand that you're going to have to be selfless. You, you've had a selfish state of existence for uh, however long you've had. And then you come in and you've got to be somebody else's servant. These things that have been established by God, the minute... The minute that our culture starts to redefine any of this stuff, the minute we let the culture come into the church and start redefining things. You know, creation happened in six literal days. Right? I'll dwell on that for just a moment. You know, everybody that wants to, you know, say, oh no, evolution or any number of different weird explanations hasn't studied those subjects anywhere near enough. The church embracing that concept of evolution, right, tears the foundation out from underneath it. When the foundation comes out from underneath it, the whole structure collapses. The whole thing goes down. My mother, uh, some years ago, uh, purchased a huge farm 
in Garland, Maine. Uh, it was built there before uh, this nation was established, as far as far as we can tell, based on some of the town's records. Uh, some of the beams inside the barn were uh, 18 inches square, straight straight through, holding to the barn. Impressive structure, amazing. People that had lived there before us. Um, well, I'll keep some of my comments to myself. But they made the decision, they were raising pigs, they made the decision that they were going to take huge slabs of granite out from underneath one corner of that barn in order that the pigs could go in and out of the barn uh, through that hole in the foundation. And when we moved in, uh, the barn had barely you know, started to settle, but we went back years later after we had moved out and the entire weight of that structure, all those beams hanging out in there had just pulled that whole thing to the ground. The whole back of that barn had pulled it right off the foundation. You take the foundation out from underneath Christianity and the whole of the thing will collapse. And this is what the church is actively engaged in. We, we are built. Uh, look, if you've not heard me say it before, just go back to Genesis chapter 3 where temptation comes into creation, right? How does the devil do that? He comes in and what he says to Eve is, has God said, right? You shall not eat of the tree of the garden. But what he said, that's irrelevant. He calls into question, has God said this? Right? <clears throat> we read six literal days of creation, and much of the church is so infatuated with science that it looks at science and says, well, we can't ever question that. So if they say it was millions or billions of years, then we're going to look stupid, and we don't want to look stupid. You know how embarrassing that is. So we'll just agree with them. The issue is, has God said? Has God said it was six literal days? I mean, couldn't those days be thousands or millions or billions of years? I mean, after all, over here, Peter said, you know, be not deceived, a thousand years is but a day, and a day is but a thousand years unto the Lord. Couldn't we do some kind of weird application like that? You start moving things around. Here's the issue, you guys. In Genesis, right, God starts creation, and then what does he say? And then morning, and then evening, or the first day. One 24-hour light cycle was the first day, and then the second day, and the third day, and fourth, and fifth, and six days. God created it in six literal days. You start moving that, you peel that foundational stone out from underneath Christianity and the next thing falls and the next thing falls and the next thing falls. And in the end, your Christianity is useless. You have to leave the things in place that God puts in place. Do not move them. People have often said to me as I go through this description, well, you say that because you don't understand science. No, I do understand science. And I have studied this issue extensively. I mean, let's just chase a few elements here for a moment. Stay ready, science class? How about the consumption of the sun? Right? There are various 
estimations, but I'll throw out the ones that are most common, okay? Because this group of scientists say one thing, that group of scientists say another. So let's just go middle of the road and say this. The sun burns off 120 million tons of mass a second. That's incredibly fuel inefficient. Just you think your suburban's bad. 120 million tons of mass a second. That's almost five feet of the sun gone every year, burned away. If you add back 1 million years, right? 120 million tons of mass every second, just keep adding it back. Go back a million years, the diameter of the sun reaches past Uranus. The earth wouldn't be here just a million years ago, right? Everything within the solar system would be completely vaporized just one million years ago. They're telling us that there's 56 million years between dinosaurs and man. 56 million. One million would have put the diameter of the sun at the place where this universe could, or this solar system could not exist. What would 56 million years put back? How big would the sun have been then? It certainly wouldn't be a red dwarf giant. It would have probably been an eclipsing white star that you couldn't have had any life around. That much mass added back to this sun. That's, that's just one element in the question of creation. They say, okay, well, <clears throat> we've, uh, we've done carbon dating on fossils. Well, here's, here's the deal, okay. Carbon dating has to have been done on something that was once living, okay? Can't, can't be done on rock. Also, it can only estimate, right, estimate the age of whatever you're testing as far back as 88,000 years. If you're going to do carbon testing on anything that was once living, the oldest you could ever say is, this is 88,000 years. That's it. No more discussion. You can't date anything older than that. Because they take the two sides of the carbon molecule. One is stable, carbon-14. One is stable. The other is unstable. The unstable side will deteriorate. The stable side remains the same. So when they find something that is a carbon life form, they measure the stable side and they say, there, that's the entirety of the carbon that it absorbed and half of it is gone. If half of it is gone, they can say, that's 44,000 years old. That died 44,000 years ago. If it's completely gone, right, they can say it's, it died 88,000 years ago because it takes 88,000 years for all of the carbon to deteriorate. There will be no carbon after 88,000 years. The, the unstable side would have been completely diminished. So how in the world can they ever tell you, we know this is 56 million years old because we carbon tested it? They can't. It's not possible, right? Creation Research Institute, San Diego, California, largest body of scientists in the world, took a live mollusk, segmented off a section of the shell, put it, in a box, sent it away for carbon testing, told them in the form that they filled out, we found this 
in the geological column at a place where we believe that it is 40 million years old. The lab does its testing, sends back the results and says, you were right. It is 41.75 million years old. They take the same mollusk and they take another section off the side of the shell, put it in a box, send it to the same lab and say, we dug this up and we found it in a section of the geological column that leads us to believe it's 128 million years old. The lab does its tests and sends it back and says, we agree with you. It's 128 million years old. They do it three times. And whatever they tell the lab it is for age, the lab sends back to them and says, that's how old it is. Circular confirmation. Here's the deal, you guys. They kept the mollusk alive through that whole process. So the mollusk that they're declaring as being millions of years old is still in the lab alive at the time. Hasn't even died yet. Hasn't even died yet. Radioactive halos. I'm glad you brought it up. <clears throat> so how this is done is with rock. And they cut the rock where they have found a radioactive seed. Just trust me on that terminology. In the center that is emanating its radioactivity out into the rock. And they determine the radioactivity and its rate of deterioration. And then they say, since that's right there in the center, and the ring has expanded this far around that radioactive seed, then we know based upon the deterioration of the radioactivity that that rock has to be, you know, whatever, 56 million, 68 million, 168 million years old. They even go up to billions with radioactive halo dating. Well, here's the deal. What they don't tell you is in that same rock, we found hundreds of radioactive halos that are of all various deteriorations. Some say 65 million, others say 1 billion, others say so many million. There's all kinds in the same rock layer. Another thing they won't tell you is that the radioactive seed, when embedded in rock, right? Drill a hole, put the radioactive seed in there, seal the hole. It doesn't emanate out into the rock. The only time it does that is when that radioactive seed is the same temperature as the rock over 5,000 degrees. When the rock is liquid, then the radioactive seed will crack open and begin. And what happens, we discovered Mount St. Helen. Melt the rock, melt the radioactive seed, rock hardens, radioactive halo is frozen into the rock. It happens during the creation of the rock. You're never going to hear these things in your textbooks. You're never going to hear these things in your schools. The people that say, oh, you believe in six literal days of creation. You're so closed-minded. I ask them, have you ever examined the biblical understanding of six literal days of creation? No. Well, I've taken the time to examine evolution 
and all of its details, and I'll sit and talk with you in detail about it as long as you would like, but you haven't examined the six literal days of creation. I mentioned moments ago, Creation Research Institute, San Diego, California. So if you get the time, look up Dr. Henry Morris. Dr. Henry Morris is one of, was one of the world's leading hydrologists. Two PhDs in hydrology. Why would anyone ever want to get a PhD is beyond me. Why would they want to get two in the same area of study is really weird. But anyway, two PhDs in the study of hydrology. He has written a book. He's written many books, but he's written a book called The Genesis Record. If you take the opportunity to read the Genesis record, what you're going to discover is it is a detailed explanation of how this world unquestionably was completely submerged in water all at the same time at one point in history. Just like the scripture says, flooded by water. The whole world flooded. That doesn't, that doesn't happen accidentally in his studies he wrote another book which was the thing that helped bring me to my understanding of christianity called and i'll just try to wrap it up with this concept it's called the twilight of evolution and in that book he gives the explanation that there have been many theories in science throughout history that went through their birth to their zenith to their death, right? You know, the, the uh, what, uh, uh, geocentric theory, the idea that the earth was in the middle of particularly the solar system and everything rotated around it. So we had, you know, the birth of that concept and then the peak of that concept and the, the twilight and then the death of that concept. And, and what he says in the book is that you know, consider this, right? Uh, a lot of this comes from Darwin's book, Origin of the Species, which, which interestingly enough, was an incredibly racist book. Incredible. The, 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 the actual title of the book was the superiority of the white race due to the origin of the species. Imagine if that was being promoted today in the environment of Black Lives Matters. Right. 1869, Darwin's making these claims when we're just developing the microscope that you can look into the microbiology world. No, no one's studied that. Darwin is saying at the time that single celled organisms are meaningless globules of life. Wow. That's a gross overestimation. A single-celled object is just, it's a meaningless glob of life. No, no, it's a more complex thing than you could possibly imagine. Uh, Morris says, the birth of this concept, this theory of evolution, has already reached its peak. It has already begun its decline. It should be in its twilight in the process of dying. And yet, our culture will not let it die. Because he makes the assertion that it is it is a religion. It's not science. 
It's a belief system. Men in powerful positions are insisting this is truth, and if you believe otherwise, you're the idiot. Take the time. Take the time to read. Consider this, you guys. I don't care who they are inside Christianity and what wonderful things they are doing. If they are leading the body of Christ away from the word of God, you need to get them out of your life. You need to stop following their teachings. You need to stop following their doctrine. You need to hold to the truth of God's word. Answers in Genesis, Ken Ham. You know, this is my second of five closings. So you, you, need to, you need to go on to that website. If you have questions, listen, what I just quoted to you about radioactive halos, uh, that was Answers in Genesis. Go to their website, their search bar on their website. Just type in radioactive halos. You're going to get like hundreds of publications from the world's leading researchers on the subjects. I usually have to go about midway down to find one that I can actually read and understand. You know, because most of them are so collegiate that I'm, they're beyond me. I don't have a degree in whatever area they're studying. So whatever question you may have, type it in. You know, where, where, where did Cain get his wife? Literally. Just type it in. You'll get answers. You'll be able to discover the truth of God's word. We, as the body of Christ, need to be done with the ungodly influences of the ungodly world permeating the body of Christ. Make sense? Praise God. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, I thank you so much for your love and your graciousness, and I pray that you would help us to be submitted to you, your will, your life, your word. Help us to follow you in all things. Help us to be men and women that trust you for who you are. Bless us, keep us, watch over us until we are together again. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.